Hello again, and welcome to Killing the Great White Male, episode 29. We left off last time talking about the question, what does it mean to you to not be alone when you're struggling against oppression? So, let's dive right back in. Do our best best Patrick Stewart and engage. Before before you leave that stuff, I, yeah. I, I don't want to say that it was a challenge for me. Yeah. Um, and I want to say that th- those things are not important. And I want to touch on the fact that you said these are important things to him as a man. Yeah. And this is when I reference his own upbringing that he didn't even reference back when he when he thought about the the patriarch matriarch matriarchal system of of marriage. Yeah. And his when his mom and dad were sitting. <laughs> getting uh air counseling and his mom was in this was in the, the moment of the feminism um the the fe- fe- feminism movement and the, the preacher said will you be submissive to your husband and she was like no and his father stepped in and said hey we will be submissive to each other yes and this is and, and this is generally that's generally my argument um but the the piece that i had a challenge with um when it comes to fighting for feminism and lesbianism and all these other sexual isms that you can go down the list. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for them, but what I do think should happen is that we have collective energy going towards one thing so that we can collectively go towards the next thing. And the next thing is like, if we, if we're all directing our energies to a different policy, then we're espousing energy in multiple places without having a, a true effect on, so, and, on, and, on that, that which we need to, yeah. to have an effect on. I know we've had this conversation See, a I couple hate times because it's it, The problem is that something is still popping shit up, and I want to attack that. It, it is something that... I know you and, and, and you and you you do. It's kind of like risk. You have you ever played risk? Oh yeah, constantly. Uh, well, nobody you, will play it, with me. <laughs> I do. I'll play with you. I love risk. <laughs> I can't get anybody to play with me. It's it's, it's you you run the. I hate to say you run the risk. You but you run the risk of spreading out too thinly when you're trying to colonize these other countries <laughs> with your men. But if you focus in on your certain areas and fortify positions mm-hmm. um, on the front end and the back end, then you, you, you're more likely to, to win the game. And, well, and, and I feel like we, we continuously hitch another person's wagon to our movement or to whatever that movement is. When you continuously hitch another movement to the wagon, it continuously um, makes people forget about the, the, the movement that, that positioned us in this direction in the first place. And I know I'm going to, I'm going to pull something out of the book again. Yeah. Um, when he on page two Oh two, when he talked about the failures, I know you touched on this too. He said the repetitive failures exact the toll. They do. Yeah. Um, racial history does not repeat harmlessly. Instead mm. it's devastation multiplies and, uh, multiplies when generation after generation repeats the same field strategies yeah. and solutions and ideologies rather than burying the past failures in caskets of the past generations. And, and that's what we, again, I think we started off with me saying I, I used to hate history yeah. and I, I thought everything that I was encountering as I started to mature and read 
um, were were brand new things. And even in this book, as he as he referenced so many things from over a hundred years ago, yeah. we're talking about the same, same thing now in this shit. new modern society. Right, <laughs> this new modern society. Okay. We're talking the same stuff that they was talking over a hundred years ago. But here's what's different about BLM. And this is here's my argument for why we have to actually diver, uh, create more variety in our movements and more connections, is that when we do that, we have more people marching for this cause. And the, the ending the whack-a-mole thing, the ending the notion that we can tackle one of these at a time, we have to have. I I would argue we have to have people who are uh, making these arguments for specific issues. Yes. Because we have to have people who can think critically and very clearly about these individual issues. But when we talk about a protest movement, I feel like we have to be bigger than the whack-a-mole game because what we actually have to attack is that that notion that we are all separate, that these different parts have to have names, that power over. And here's my argument actually with the risk with the risk thing, because what I want to question is the principles of the entire game. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to attack. I want to attack who made the fucking map and drew all these fucking lines on this goddamn thing. Oh gosh, bro. (laughs) Again, I, I, I think that's where, this is where I go. We'll agree to disagree. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, This is where where I go back to my separate, but equal argument. If we, if we, if we first realize that even though we're categorized, even though we've been named, like Adam has given, God gave Adam the power to name all the things on the earth. (laughs) Even though we've been named, even though (sighs) we've been, I've been named black and you've been named white. If we can just get past the thing that says one, if we can get past the support superiority complex and think separate, but equal, then you, I think we would find a lot more in involvement with people integrating and marching together because we'd be thinking separate but equal. And we'd be thinking, um, this is how I introduce you to my, to, to my culture, or this is how I introduce you to the things that are important to me. And I, I tend to think back to even the, the, the burst of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that one of the things that I hear in the community common and often every, Every day, I know, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard this term before, but when black people say they're not voting or yeah. I don't care, or, I'm not too big on politics, the first thing that comes out of another black person's mouth is our ancestors died oh, for, the, for the yeah. right for us to vote. And that, that's, that's a very common thing that's, that's stated. And for me, who um, admittedly so, I, I, haven't vo- I hadn't voted um, until recently, um, since Obama, after Obama's first term, I voted for him. I stumped for him. I put out signs and did all this campaigning for Barack Obama in his, in his first term. Yeah. Um, and that was something. And, and then I was, I was disappointed in, in the Barack Obama that I, that, that I think we had as a president. And, and it made me not want to vote moving, moving forward. Just recently, I've, I've got back into the voting game, but I've heard, but during the time that I was out, I heard so oh, many God, times yeah. that, hey, our ancestors died for us to have the right to to vote. No, they and died for your them, choice. Oh, e, e, okay, Let's here we clear, go. This, and, this right? is what I say. and this is and this is what my, my response have, has been for for that whole period of time. 
our ancestors dying for our, or fighting for our right to vote, there's an inherent belief that we had something to vote for. During that time, having the right to vote was what they were dying and fighting to vote for. Yeah. Having the right to vote. Yeah. And oh wow, yeah. When we had Barack Obama, that was the first black president in the United States of America. That's having something to vote for. Mm-hmm. These days, I tend to shy away from looking at people. I don't have to worry about identity politics. I, and I and I now work I now concern myself with policy. And as I concern myself with policy, um we d- we don't have a policy on the table for us to to really vote for or something that I say is important for us to vote for. So we have to have an inherent, there's that inherent belief that there will be something to vote for if we're going to be voting. I don't shy. I don't don't make anybody shy away from voting. uh, And I don't expect you to use my method. Cause like I said, I just (laughs) now got back into voting and, and my method of voting will be voting down ballot. I don't like either side. I don't like the Republican. I don't like the, um, the Democratic ticket. So what I'll be doing is voting down ballot, which means I'll be voting for everything but presidential, but a presidential candidate, because I can't morally align myself to either side. So as much as I have major issues with the Biden-Harris ticket around police policing issues, for example, they're they are not going to break the back of the uh, school to prison pipeline. They're not going to deal with the uh, the massive problems of our privatized prison industrial complex like they're they're not going to deal with those i'll just be blunt what i will say on the other on the other side of that is what i am voting for that they that is in their platform is expanding health care like looking at the aca and saying that was insufficient we need more people with more access to better health care um I'm not always sure that they have the tools to do it, but I don't give a shit. Push the fucking bus forward. Get it moving. Um, Number one. Number two, relief of student loan debt. I'm one of those people who has, who like I'm I'm ineligible for any student loans for my PhD because I have the maximum of debt. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a white guy with that. I know that that shit affects uh, people of color disproportionately. Um, it affects people who came from even lesser means than, than I grew up with disproportionately. So I do think that that again will be a, a, a shift if they are able to forgive student loan debt, um, that will be a massive, massive shift to the economic status of a whole bunch of Americans, um, with marginalized identities with who, who are massively marginalized. So I think those two alone, I'm excited about like, God, can we please get those done? Um, the Green New Deal. Uh, again, we know that climate change hurts marginalized people disproportionately around the world and in this country. Um, and again, they're on board with this shit, supposedly. <laughs> I'm always skeptical because I always expect the, <laughs> the corporate interests to own those guys anyway. But um, at least up front, those are policies that are being pushed and we have to hold them accountable to. So there is, for me, actually stuff that I'm wanting to vote for about those two. I'm not sure I can say I'm hopeful, but I will say <laughs> yeah, I'm well, excited about. Well, that. like you said, they're not gonna they're not gonna tackle the 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 school to prison pipeline. They're definitely not gonna tackle that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have my own opinions about Kamala Harris's truancy law and her 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 history 
with locking up innocent parents because their yeah. kids want to go to school because she's yep. sending them directly to jail. So yep. yeah, you, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I said, I, I strip away the person in front of the, 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 the person that they, they've put in front of us and say, Hey, what, what, what are the policies that I can look at? What, according to Ibram, what anti-racist policies have these people put forth and how have they, how have they um, helped equalize our current divide? And I just Man, don't see them from either, either side. I'm not, I'm also not willing to totally strip away the person. I, I not yet. Well, here's, here's the thing. I, I can sit here and critique some of Obama's policies. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I also, I have to sit in wonder at what it meant for my kids who by the end of his presidency had had a black man in the White House for more of their life than not. Because just because of the way the ages lined up, that that was the majority of their life was seeing presidential addresses from somebody that they were taught was black. And again, we can, you know, colorism is a thing. But like, what does that do to them, even as white kids? Much less, what does it do to uh, people of color? And and then I look at Kamala Harris and I say, what does it mean for women of color to see Mm -hmm. somebody like I still? So I guess I'm I'm with you on the policy thing. I also think that there's something significant going on when we we change those things when we talk about the problem of the media we talk about you know you having the same experience that uh kendy did around coming to america and in the i immediately think well how many fucking films in that decade had a predominantly black cast in front of uh, on the screen well it's no wonder that you guys had formative experiences around this fucking movie yeah right so for as problematic as as some some stuff was around even that movie just to see people who at least looked like my dinner table. Right. I imagine that must be significant. No, I I completely agree. So yeah, yeah, that's this. It's coming to America was, was my times black Panther. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. But the real problem is that that's one fucking movie out of hundreds. You got it. Right. And so that makes me think of another. Oh, my gosh. That makes that that drew me to one one other other thing in the book I want to touch on. uh, (laughs) I've got I've got two more on my list, too. I'm with you. Um, I got to find it, though. (laughs) Okay, well, here it is. is. Integration had to integration had to turn into a one way street. A young Chicago lawyer observed in 1995 the, the minority assimilated. In the into the dominant culture, yep. not the other way around. Barack Obama wrote, "Only white culture could be neutral and objective. Only white culture could be non-racial. Integration into whiteness became yep. racial progress." So yeah, this is this is what we're looking at as progress, and you're, you're touching on that. Yeah. And it's like we we don't have the ability to do that. We our our progress shouldn't be assimilation into the predominant culture it should no. be culture sharing each other's it's culture. turning the fucking yeah. tennis courts into a basketball court in the white house you got it. like that there we go like not to say that <laughs> basketball is black culture anything like that but 
but but it it is oh my God. The, like he wasn't going to give up what was for him meaningful shit just because it wasn't white enough for that fucking house. Right. Right. Agreed. Like that's I, I I don't know. I think that's okay. So I have to hit this one because this one for for people who hear this podcast again. My hope is to be able to talk with other great white males about what we have to do to unfuck this shit, to unfuck ourselves because we're being cut off from good shit about our world, about our friends, about other cultures, about ourselves because of, of this fucking box, this paper doll that's stuck over us. that says great white male on page 129. Kendi really nails it for us. For us, he speaks directly to us and what we have to gain here. <laughs> he says, of course, ordinary white people benefit from racist policies, though not nearly as much as racist power and not nearly as much as they could from an equitable society, one where the average white voter could have as much power as super rich white men who decide elections and shape policy, where their kids' business class schools could resemble the first-class prep schools of today's super-rich, where high-quality universal health care could save millions of white lives, where they could no longer face the cronies of racism that attack them, sexism, ethnocentrism, homophobia, and exploitation. He basically, I mean, he pulls... I see that stuff as coming from the black feminist tradition, by the way. it. I think he very much... Okay says this is the argument for white people being involved in this but what what i also loved is that he then on page 132 goes back and fucking mm-hmm. nails out the statistics behind that um white supremacists claim to be pro-white but refuse to acknowledge that climate change is having a disastrous impact on the earth that white people inhabit they oppose affirmative action programs despite white women being the primary beneficiaries hold that for a second White people oppose okay. affirmative action despite white women being the primary beneficiary of those programs, which has its own fucking hit. problems, right? He, he does hit it. He does hit it. Right. White supremacists rage against Obamacare, even as 43% of the people who gained life-saving health insurance from 2010 to 2015 were white. The hail Adolf Hitler's Nazis, even though it was the Nazis who launched a world war that destroyed the lives of more than 40 million white people and ruined Europe. They wave Confederate flags and defend Confederate monuments, even though the Confederacy started a civil war that ended with more than 500,000 white American lives lost. I mean, it, it goes on and, and white supremacy is anti-white. When I first read that line in the book, it was a full stop moment. It was one of those moments I just had to, whoa, wait, did, did you, did really, did you just, and the answer is yes, he did. He articulated very clearly with facts and data, as well as heart, exactly how white supremacist agendas undermine, distort, and kill, especially poor whites. The very people who are often recruited into those movements. That's the power of hate. That's the power of our need to be in relationship. And it gets distorted and used. 
So yeah, that was one of those moments in this book. If you haven't bought this book yet, by the way, dude, just get it. Read it. It's incredible. Figure out what you want to argue with with him. It's fantastic. So there we are. Tune in next time for our conclusion, the final episode on how to be an anti-racist. We'll talk to you soon.